The world is ending. Again. Doomsdayers and apocalyptic prophets have warned of coming calamity for millennia. Still, humanity persists. This podcast invites entrepreneurs, scholars, community leaders, artists, and many others to envision the end of the world according to their expertise. I'm Vera Rose Smith, your host, and this is Art at the End of the World. Today we welcome Stratus Yanakoros, the Director of the Office of Sustainability and the Environment at the University of Iowa. Before coming to Iowa, Stratus served as a Project Manager and Program Director for the Julie Ann Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Before that, he was Assistant Director to the Center for Sustainable Communities at Luther College and the Sustainability Outreach Coordinator at Colorado State University. Stratus has a bachelor's degree in economics from Loris College and a master's degree in environmental politics and policy from Colorado State University. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, March 25th, 2020. So if you could just introduce yourself and tell us about your current role. Uh, so my name is Stratus Yanakuros, and I direct the Office of Sustainability and the Environment at the University of Iowa. And uh, my role is essentially um, on the academic side. So I'm part of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and I'm supported by the College of Business and the College of Public Health and the College of Engineering. And our office uh, is designed to promote the scholarship and research um, around sustainability, and then also thinking about the campus as a living laboratory for sustainability. And what that means is moving from thinking about problematizing sustainability to thinking about what are the solutions um, that our students, faculty, and staff can engage in um, across campus. Thank you, great. And how did you get interested in this work? Well, uh, I started out as a more of just an environmentalist um, back in the day. And as I became more engaged in thinking about saving the environment, I realized that, that modern environmental thought is really has an absence or missing a gap in thinking about how society is impacted, how individuals are impacted, um, just broadly thinking about the social pieces uh, that go into why we're, we have an environmental um, you know, crisis on our hands. And so what sustainability does is it allows you to think more broadly about um, unequal exchange and transboundary impacts and how harms and benefits are unevenly distributed across the world. And then it allows the solutions you come up with um, to be more effective. And it allows a more human approach to thinking about why we conserve the environment and what the best way is to do that. So, so I started out as an environmentalist and then realized quickly that you have to take this broader, more complex and comprehensive view of, of what it means to save the environment and what it means to be part of the world in order to solve the biggest environmental crises that we face. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, no. so how did that become a professional trajectory for you? You started as an environmentalist, which seems like a pretty personal orientation to this. Uh -huh. So describe that path for us. Well, actually, so I, I in college, I, I was an econ major and I, cause I thought at the time that that was going to be the best way to get a job. And I did major in economics and you know, did some math and other things. And I actually didn't study a lot. I didn't take a single environmental course uh, when I was in college. 
but I spent all my time outdoors in the woods and you know, on the Mississippi River doing things that I wanted to do outside of that. So my personal interests were diverging from my education because I felt that going to college at that time meant you should do something that's going to get you a job. And what you're interested in, what you're passionate about is separate from that. And uh, I got out and I worked for a year in finance and realized that that, that was not, it was a non-starter for me, that I was not going to be happy um, sitting in a cube and kind of thinking about these esoteric problems of finance and that I really wanted to be engaged in the stuff that I loved to do. And so I, I quit my job and I went and I found an organization in Greece um, called Metaset. And what they were doing at the time was trying to preserve the Coretta Coretta loggerhead turtle in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so a lot of nesting beaches, some of those most important nesting beaches in the world are located in just a few spots in the Greek islands. And um, they were being encroached upon by development and tourism and all these things were going on that were really going to severely impact these turtles. And so I said, hey, I'll, I'll volunteer for a year to come there. I'd save some money. I said, I'm going to volunteer for a year to come down and help you. And they wanted me to do communications. I spoke good English. I also spoke good Greek. And so they said, can you be our communications officer? And I hosted different groups that came in. The BBC did a documentary with us. We talked to the European um, Commission. We talked to different groups around Greece. And we worked. I worked there for about eight months and finally got burned out. I ran out of money. And I was very frustrated with the pace of, of, of change in Greece at that time. The Greek government was not interested in, in designating a marine park and diverting, they were diverting funds actually from the EU that were earmarked for good work and other things. And I kind of saw firsthand the complexity of, of what environmentalism means. And, and by that, I guess I mean that uh, when I went down there, I had a lot of Greeks who were in these areas we were trying to protect. They called me a traitor and they said, you know, you're a traitor. I have this field or this plot of land and why shouldn't I be allowed to develop it and my kids need to eat and get an education and I need to thrive and you know you are an American who is coming down here and telling me what to do and you can't have and we don't have to listen to you so we're gonna have we're gonna develop anyway and no one wants you around here and I just, I just looked at the trade-offs and the complexity of people trying to make a living versus protecting the environment and how all this stuff worked and what the drivers of these problems were. And uh, so when I left, I was burned out, but I decided that I really had to go and study this more. Um, so I came back and for a couple of years anyway, I worked with, a, we started our own NGO. My brother and I started a nonprofit called Green Dubuque. And we were working directly on impacts of climate change and got involved in sustainability from that angle. Um, I worked on some programs at, at Stanford and Berkeley and then at Babson. Um, and in New York City at Pace University, teaching clean tech entrepreneurship and trying to take a more expansive view of business. And I did a lot of work in those places and finally went to grad school um, at Colorado State University. And there I went and studied um, environmental policy and environmental politics. And when I was there, I got really heavily involved in sustainability. I worked for the School of Global Environmental Sustainability. Um, and then that kind of set me on this on this career trajectory where I started working inside universities on sustainability. So I went from there to Luther College when I graduated and I taught for two and a half years. I was a, I taught environmental studies and then worked as the director, assistant director of the Center for Sustainable Communities. From there, I went on to Arizona State University and I worked in a little startup that was um, 
a $26 million venture from the Walton Family Foundation um, that was earmarked at thinking about how universities could take the research they were doing and translate it into environmental or sustainability outcomes. Um, the argument was that often good research is done in universities, but there's not a really good mechanism for translating that, that research into um, solutions. So I worked as a project manager and a program manager for, for that outfit uh, for three years. And we worked in Albania and Lebanon and Jordan. We tried to spin up projects in Vietnam. We did stuff here in the U.S. And it was always trying to find ways where we could take the research in the university, take either a government or a private partner, um, and figure out a way to get a project going that would make a difference for sustainability. Um, when I was down there, I also started 20 different um, what I would call almost like, like intervention programs where we would go with faculty and students to different countries around the world and try to do things like put up solar panels or work on social policy. Or um, I, I, ran, I run them in, in Nepal, um, in Brazil, in Hong Kong, in Costa Rica, in Greece, all over the, all over the world. Um, it was an opportunity for students to take what they learned in the classroom and translate it into these sort of real world environments. Uh, we worked with cities to do this also. Um, and then finally, this opportunity at the University of Iowa opened up. And uh, I, I'm from Iowa, and I love the state of Iowa, and I'm an Iowan at heart. And so I decided to come home to the university here to try to spin up some of the things that I'd learned through an office here where students could have access to internships, research. We could do interdisciplinary research with faculty. Um, and we could have a bigger footprint in the state of Iowa around sustainability. That's kind of how I've gotten here. That's the, I guess, maybe the short version. Oh my goodness. That's an incredible story. So I'd like to know a little bit more about your one year in finance. Was there a moment when you were just like, okay, I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. Was it learning about the turtles? Did the turtles come after? Describe the moment when you decided yeah, to make your life the, 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 the turtles came after. Um, I remember <clears throat> I was about six months in when I realized that this is not going to drive me, that it's, it, it's interesting. People always say, um, listen to yourself and follow your heart, all these things. I think that when you're young, when you're like 22 years old, there's a lot of noise and a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure and student loan debt, all these things that come together and they make it really hard. And, it, and it's easy to say, you know, follow your heart and be poor. If that's what you think is going to happen to you, you, you might say, I, you know, I, I'm not going to take that risk. But what I realized really quickly was, I'm not gonna be successful at this. I wasn't willing to invest the time um, and the energy to get really good at it. I had no pathway when I started job shadowing of a job above mine that I wanted to have. And I thought, I'm, I'm gonna flounder here or I could try to invent myself along the lines that I want to. Um, part of my inspiration was friends who had taken a different course. Um, one of my friends was, became a wildlife biologist and he was working in Las Vegas and he was studying burrowing owls and, and um, and desert tortoises. And his job involved him, you know, running around the desert as a project manager, looking at NEPA contracts and doing all kinds of really cool stuff. And I thought, you know, he's doing some really cool work and here I am doing something I don't want to do. And I, I have to, I have to shift gears. And I looked around for a job that would pay me. Um, but because I didn't have that background, I hadn't studied it in college, which is what I should have done. And eventually I had to just save my money and take an unpaid internship to kind of restart my career. And that's how I ended up looking around. And the reason I ended up in Greece is because I had talked to someone at Duke University about a project they were working on. I was kind of interested in, in sea turtles. I had seen them in Greece in the past. 
And she said, you're Greek. And I know a wonderful person who's working on this stuff in Greece. And she would be able to take you on as an unpaid intern if you're willing. And that's how I, I ended up going to Greece to take this UN. It was like a, a UN United Nations program on sea turtles going on. Amazing. Did you experience any pushback from other friends or your family for taking this dr drastic shift in career? Um, I think people looked at me like I didn't know what I was like, what, what I wanted to do. No one really said, you know, why are you giving up this great opportunity? Because it wasn't a, a, a job that, that I clearly wanted to keep, you know, and so I would have had to, to make some kind of a life change. I think they were probably thinking, you know, I'm having a hard time getting started. And so here I am, I'm going to go six months and spend whatever little money I'd save and, and restart my career. But honestly, I didn't get anybody, I guess in my circle that thought it was a bad idea because my circle, all of my friends were in environmental careers already. They'd gone to college for environmental careers and then came right out into them. Um, and so I think in some ways they weren't, they weren't as worried as I was in college about going that route. They knew what they wanted to do and they were able, they were more successful quicker. And so I think that I tell young people now, um, don't be afraid to follow things that you know, right? If you're, if you're spending all your time outside the classroom interested in something, you should probably be figuring out ways to study that in the classroom also. It's gonna pay off. Thank you, that's a really wonderful message. And I'm wondering if we could switch a little bit to talking specifically about sustainability now. So you've described mm -hmm. how complex of a concept this is and how your skills, linguistically, your skills, both in your background as a, a person in finance and as a person who didn't formally study environmental sciences until a little bit later after you got going in the field, uh, all came together to help you now in your work as an advocate for sustainability. But what is sustainability in the simplest definition? So the simplest definition I go back to is the Brundtland definition. It was the commission that was put together that first discussed in 1986 what sustainability was. Um, it's United, United Nations Commission. And um, they just said that sustainability in the preamble to what they wrote, which is called Our Common Future, which is a great document to look up. It's bigger than just the definition. Um, they said that sustainability is the ability of current generations to meet our needs without impinging upon or, or inhibiting the, the ability of future generations to also meet their needs. So sustainability is an intra-generational and intergenerational concept that says, live well today without you living well, you know, causing your daughter or grandchild or great-grandchild um, to have a worse life. You know, it's, it's just a, it's understanding that, that these are generational issues and you can't do things that take away from future generations' ability to live as well as you do. So that's a really hopeful, beautiful definition. And now I'm going to ask you to destroy it. What is, <laughs> <laughs> what is the end of sustainability? What's the absolute worst case scenario for your field? So for my field, I think that, you know, this is a good question. Like climate change in some ways has become the elephant in the room or the, the 800 pound gorilla, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, because you can't have any discussion anymore. It used to be that, I mean, when I was younger, I was talking about the need to protect the rainforest and biodiversity and um, clean water and all the things that we think about as just as pure environmentalism, right? Like let's protect the, the natural endowments that we have. Um, now that, that climate change, um, we understand the threat of climate change more clearly. 
um, it's obvious that yes, you can go into the, the cloud forest in Costa Rica and try to save the frogs that are there from clear cutting in the forest. But if climate change, you know, keeps a pace, the cloud forest we know in Costa Rica will vanish. The entire cloud forest will vanish in the next 50 years, right? And so, so you have to address climate change to address anything and make anything sustainable. So the end of sustainability in that respect looks like a scenario of runaway climate change where the worst catastrophic effects of climate change kick in. And we know that that's largely going to start beyond one and a half degrees Celsius. And so we're, we're approaching that number. And that's, you know, uh, a scary thought is that there does come a point where if we put enough carbon in the atmosphere, the radiative forcing that goes along with it and the additional heat that comes in and everything that's going to be, all the feedback loops that are going to kick in are going to mean that humans are going to be taken out of the equation. And so an example of that is, is looking at the, the frozen tundra or the methane, the frozen methane in Siberia, for instance. Um, there comes a point where we will get warm enough that the frozen areas of, the, of Siberia will start to thaw. And when they do, they're going to release a lot of methane. Methane is a gas that is CH4, right? It's a carbon and, or, or hydrogen and four carbons. Or sorry, a, a carbon and four hydrogens. And so that, that gas in the atmosphere has something like 30, 29 to 30 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. And once the methane starts thawing and that CH4 starts getting released, um, it will cause a dramatic amount of warming in the atmosphere that we can't stop that will cause more warming. It will cause more melting of the glaciers, it will cause other feedback loops to kick in. And once this process starts, we can't do anything about it. And that will cause runaway climate change and it will cause ecological collapse across the planet. So sustainability really has become um, about stopping climate change. Um, but then within that, you have these issues of, of the immediate impacts of climate change and unsustainable living are not evenly distributed, right? So you have people in the very wealthy areas of the United States, at least, um, will feel the effects of climate change in a different way than people in the developing world who don't have this financial or technological buffer. And so sustainability says, yes, climate change is a problem. It's probably the biggest problem we face, but the impacts of how climate change affects all of us is gonna be uneven. And so we really need to worry about, um, although we'll all suffer, um, some of us will suffer earlier and more than others. And that, that matters also. How does sustainability intersect with our current situation of a pandemic? You know, that's a really tough one. I, I guess my first thought on the pandemic is what, it, what, it, what a really terrible time for all of us, um, yeah. especially those of us that are more vulnerable. And, it, and it's honestly hard to know who's more vulnerable, right? Just because you're 20 years old or 30 years old doesn't necessarily mean that you're out of the woods. I think we're seeing something like 44% of patients in New York City right now are between the ages of, of 20 and 45. Mm -hmm. So um, those are the people in the hospital, not the people that have contracted it. Um, and so I think that what it means is, and, and that's where I want to start with, is that it means it's, it's a social problem. It's something we're all connected to, and it's going to affect us in profound ways. And so I think first and foremost, we have to figure out how to stop this pandemic, how to think about an antiviral or a palliative regime or a, a vaccine or something um, that's going to stop it. In the meantime, social distancing is a big part of this. All of these sort of concepts, I think, um, we can think about through the lens of sustainability. It's a helpful tool 
in my work to think about this pandemic through that lens. And what that means is, is as we scale up across all of society, you see an impact, right? That this pandemic is going to have an impact of a certain percentage of people might, might perish in this. Um, our economies are disrupted. Um, there's a lot of issues that we could name that are, that are going along with this. But those impacts are unevenly distributed, right? And so you again think about this as if I'm 20, um, perhaps as a 20-year-old age category, my risk is less. But your responsibility to others, right, to the older generation um, is, is, is really important. And this is a similar thing we think about sustainability is while you may not suffer the effects of, say, climate change or poor water quality or poor air quality directly, you don't want to say, well, then that's not my problem because you're thinking about someone else downstream of you or someone else in a different part of the world who doesn't have the same, you know, I guess, buffer from this. So the pandemic is something we have to think about regardless of age, regardless of how you're going to come out on this, um, you have to be concerned. You know, when we think about the economy on this also, um, economically, some of us are going to be impacted harder than others. If you work as a bartender, um, if, and I did when I was in college, so I know kind of what that would feel like to someone to suddenly say, hey, the restaurant's closing and you've got to go home, right? I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have a, a, a paycheck. I couldn't work from home. Um, and so I would have been more severely impacted as a bartender than I would now in my current role. And I think that we have to be really careful to think about how in this time of need do we think about society as a whole and think about the fact that resources and effort have to be put um, to help the people who are going to be most impacted. Now, that said, you have um, groups at Stanford and others who are talking about um, the rise of pandemics, um, you know, what they call zoonotic pandemic, pandemics that come from our interaction with species like bats or pangolins or whatever you you know, have you, um, that these different viruses are, are probably the product of us pushing further and further into biological spaces we haven't been in the past. And this is a longer conversation. I want to parse those two, separate those two. I wouldn't want to point the finger and say, humans are encroaching the environment and that's causing this pandemic because I think that's, it, that's insensitive to the fact that we have to deal with this right now. But I think mm -hmm. long term, the balance of how we live, our footprint on the planet is going to be really important. Um, these Every time we kind of move into spaces where we haven't been and we disrupt natural balances that have existed, we expose ourselves to these kind of risks. And we're going to have to think really seriously about how we, you know, um, predict these things coming, um, how we live in more balance with these wild areas and wild species that we're encroaching upon, and how if we don't, um, these effects will continue to, to be felt. Um, and that's kind of, where I think, where sustainability comes into this. What gives you hope right now? For what? <laughs> for, for human <laughs> life, for the future of our planet and our species. I, th I think we really have to get serious about thinking about, you know, I, I said that, that climate change, in terms of sustainability, right? Sustainability is balancing our social endeavors and social well-being with our economic vibrancy so the economy and then with the environment right so it's this balancing act and we're not doing a great job of that right now and the answers are really complex and the trade-offs are really complex right like you can't tell people to stop their livelihoods and we want to make sure that we protect the environment we want to make sure that we are not 
you know, disproportionately impacting the most powerless, weakest, um, most economically insecure parts of society. And so I think that my hope for sustainability is that we really get serious in thinking about what that balance is. Mm. If we don't, um, we're going to find out that there are limits to, to what, we, what we can do as a society, right? There are capacity limits, maybe not at the local level. And I think about this all the time. You know, Las Vegas doesn't have any water, but there are millions of people living in the desert. So carrying capacity on a biological sense, right, means nothing for human beings. Mm. We can live where we want to. We can move resources around at the local scale. But when we scale up to, uh, to Spaceship Earth, it's a lot harder to think about it, about overshooting our limits. If we overshoot our limits as a planet, um, there are consequences. And so we have to figure out what those limits are and, and what we want to do with them. My hope for sustainability is that we will figure out a way to stop climate change, but in the process also thinking about it. it's not just climate change, right? It's, it's about biodiversity loss. It's about water quality. It's about water resources. Um, it's about a whole bunch of different things that are, that are, underneath climate change right now that we have to think about. And, you know, we have other issues and pressures like by the year, I think it's by the year 2050, we have to have 50% more food on this planet to feed the growing population that we have. That means putting an area the size of the Amazon basin in the Congo um, rainforest into food production. If we're talking about biodiversity and producing more food, we have to have a technological change in how we deliver food from an agricultural perspective. Uh, we're talking about, you know, 50% of people being water insecure by the year 2050 also. Mm -hmm. We deliver water, how we use water um, has to change also. So in a very real way, and my hope is that we'll get serious about thinking about how do we live well, right? We don't want to turn the lights out and go back into caves. People often say sustainability means taking things away. That's not true. What it does mean is we have to be smarter and more efficient in how we deal with resources and think about what our priorities are socially and then let our actions follow from that. Do you think this pandemic is helping us reprioritize our social needs? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's really too early to tell. In the middle of a crisis, um, a lot of what we're doing is reacting to and responding to what we think are the immediate needs. I think our number one goal is keep people alive, you know, and that's people who are five years old and that's people who are 85 years old. I think our, our resources should be put towards making sure that we minimize um, the number of deaths associated with this. Um, and I think for me that that's as an American, at least that's would be my number one priority is to say, how do we get out of this in a way that we preserve human life? Um, and we can take time and reflect and say, you know, I think that what this crisis has done is it showed us really clearly how globalized our world is. We always talk about globalization. We always talk about supply chains from China or Indonesia or Brazil being intertwined. Uh, I think what this has shown us is it's laid bare the insecurities in the supply chains, um, the problems of being a globalized interconnected community. And the lessons we can take from that are either to become less connected or to think about being more connected and sharing information better and, and working together. And my hope is that the latter would be the result and it wouldn't be just kind of a protectionism that, that emerges from this. So often having a crisis, you have this sort of objective reality, but the subjective interpretation is, is unpredictable, right? It doesn't mean that just because we had a crisis, we're going to work more, better together. It could cause us to actually retrench more and go back into a protective stance, which would be bad for everybody, I think. 
what we what we do know is there's a crisis and we do know that it has exposed the frailties in our economy and how our interconnected globalized society works and we're going to have to figure out how do we move forward in a way that we don't lose prosperity um but that we continue to to enhance um sort of the resiliency of the system we live in and i think a big piece of that is is environmental right it's how do we continue to have you know an, an environment that that's livable absolutely Anything else I should have asked you? Oh, no, just I, I, I don't mean to ramble. That's all. <laughs> no, you've been great. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us. This has been Art at the End of the World with Beryl Rose Smith. Tune in next week to learn about another way the world might end. The music for this podcast was written, performed, and produced by Gabby Vanek. You can hear more of her work at her SoundCloud, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks all of you for listening.